0: All right, we're going to uh, continue our looking through the book of Hosea. So go ahead and turn, if you would, to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea 7. Who can read for us verses 1 through 7? Verses 1 through 7, Hosea 7, 1 to 7. Paul, thank you.
1: Out of the baker, and to stir up the butter from the eating of the dough until the bluff. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with that heat of wine. He stretched out his hands and stop For their hearts, hearts are like an oven as they approach their platter. Their anger smoulders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot-bucking ovens
0: all right we'll start with verse 1 anything you notice from verse 1 Continuing in sin, even though God wants to heal them? What else? Anything else? Or are you going on to verses 2 and 3. Please? Yeah. Why do we forget that God sees everything? Yeah, so if we can't see God, we're a little bit like little children, right? You cover your face with a pillow, and the rest of your body is sticking out, but you think you're hiding from someone, right? Uh, Our attempts to hide from God are similarly foolish, right? Okay. Um, What do you think? Yeah. Okay, why would the kings rejoice in the wickedness of the people? Okay, Santa. Yeah. So if the king is wicked, he's going to be pleased if the people are behaving in a wicked way as well, right? Okay. Do we have any examples of kings who are like that? <laughs> kings, kings. Clarify so the time period. Was that Saul? Saul? Yeah, Saul is an interesting one. Um, he was clearly wicked. Whether he rejoiced in the wickedness of the people, I think uh, it's hard to tell from the biblical narrative because so much of it is focused on his own personal struggles and less the condition of the people. Although I think it's certainly probably true. Uh, Jeroboam, okay. Ahab, Ahab, I think is an easy one because it's very clear that he rejoiced in turning the people away from God, and particularly his wife, even more so. Right? Okay. So we have these kings who rejoice. In wickedness uh, of their people and of themselves, what about the imagery in verses four through seven? He mentions an oven in he mentions an oven in three of the verses and heat in all of them. What do you think is the picture that's going on here? Sandra? OK, um, I think we would tend to jump to the idea of hell but let's let's start with the specific illustration that he's giving Cool. okay lust okay or hell Um, let me let me tweak those two ideas just a little bit so we were doing canning a bunch of applesauce yesterday at sarah's brothers house and they were talking some of the pots had scorch marks on them when we were done And so we're talking about why that might be and then that led to a discussion of a Particular pot that they were using for I think maple syrup and somebody forgot it and left it on the heat source for I don't know Several hours at really high heat and it got so hot that the the bottom part of the pot actually separated from the cylinder So uh. When I see verse 4, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire, the, the picture here, I think, is that um, almost like not considering the consequences and neglect and all those sorts of things, instead of something being... T- if you're trying to bake, right? Do you want the oven to randomly go from like 250 to 500? No, no. I don't really bake, and I know that much, right? Right? So if the person who's supposed to be tending the oven is not paying attention to the condition of what's going on, what's going to happen to what's in, in the oven that's supposed to be produced in a particular way? It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be charred. The whole thing can fall apart, right? So when it says they became sick with the heat of wine, there's, I think this picture, the people who are supposed to be watching over the process with the people are drunk, and paying no attention whatsoever and so things grow are growing out of control whether it be to lust ultimately leading to hell or at least we would say God's destruction Um, I think it's clear that the the people who are supposed to be in charge are paying no attention which is leading to destruction for themselves and for the people and so their hearts are like an oven and and in the midst of this what's supposed to be being produced is bread and things that are pleasant and all that sort of thing. But instead, what does it say in verse 6? Their anger is smoldering and then it bursts into flame. Um, The end result, verse 7, they consume their rulers and their kings have fallen. So the lack of attention by the rulers toward the condition of the people, letting their anger run out of control instead of being managed and overseen, Leads to basically a scenario in which the whole bakery burns down and everybody in it dies, right? So that's kind of I think the picture that he's laying out here, and so the people are, the people are responsible, the rulers are responsible, all of them collectively are sinning in ways that reject God and lead to their destruction. Okay, um, let's read verses. Um, maybe 8 through 12 who wants to read 8 through 12 for us any thoughts on that actually before we go on any thoughts on Sandra? Okay, so if we are ignoring God's reproof, then God will punish us or chastise us to get our attention. Okay. Um, I think that's true. We have a strange scenario in, um, in these passages that Israel as a nation is chosen by God to be his people and that there is not... Um mm, I guess if I were to illustrate it this way, you have you have the concept of God's people, right? Let's try this one. Yeah, better. So you have the concept of God's people. So you have Israel. And then you have Believing Israel, right? So, um, the reason that I think that we want to be careful to immediately jump to a concept like hell that we were talking about a moment ago, or to be very specific in our application of this to ourselves, is to consider what is the same or different between this circumstance and our circumstance. So, at first glance, it might seem like this is the parallel, right? So that looks pretty similar, right? Israel, believing Israel, true the church, true believers, right? but i think there are a lot of differences so what is feeding into this is ethnicity right and what is feeding into this is belief or we could say a variety of nations right do you say Yeah, I mean, I guess we can put professing belief, right? And I'm going to put here birth. Okay. So the reason that that distinction is important is there are features that are similar, but it's not a one-for-one between us and Israel. So when... um, When... When Hosea is reproving the nation of Israel, he is reproving a group that is largely composed of unbelievers, but who potentially considered themselves to be God's people, um, perhaps even more closely because of the fact that there's sort of this one, um, they're all part of the same group, I think is what I'm trying to say. Whereas people in the church can have be deceived about whether or not they know God, but the basis of them being deceived is that they misunderstand belief, not that they misunderstand what group they're a part of. And so the people of Israel thought that they were a part of the group that God's going to bless, that are actually God's people, because they were born into the right family. And whereas for us... It's often, people in our, our day, it's usually because people don't really understand what the gospel means, so they think they're part of it, but they're not. And so, um, I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of similarities, but there are some subtle differences that we just need to be aware of. Um, because if the issue was, mm, like if you were in Hosea's day, Hosea is calling them not to trust in their birth, but in their relationship with God. Whereas today, it would be um, it would be similar, but the thing that we might be trusting in is a misunderstanding of salvation of the gospel message, not the idea that we were born into the church. Although there are all people who think that they're born into the church. So again, I'm just. We just need to think about time frame period like in their day, I don't know if they would have thought so much hell. They would have thought a very physical manifestation of God's judgment, right? So like the consequence of being here and being disobedient would have been uh, something like defeat, captivity, uh, disease, right? Whereas I think we more quickly jump to the, the consequence of not really being part of the true church, as being hell or eternal destruction, right? And so, uh, again, I'm not saying that's not where it ends up. I'm just saying um, there are potentially steps along the way uh, that we need to consider. So, I don't know, if this, is this making sense? Okay. Um, sometimes it helps me to draw things out and see if I'm making sense or not, so. Norma? I have a question about the parables of the kingdom of God. Okay. Um you
1: like, a judgment for unbelief for the unbelievers because it was given
0: to them? You're saying, does God, did Jesus use the parables as a mechanism to judge unbelievers? Uh, I think they're first and foremost revelation of God to himself. I think because they're receiving, they're being received not really being received being heard I guess we could say by a people who is rejecting God then they were a means of destruction but I don't know that we need to see them as only negative because there is benefit in them but I, I, I understand what you're saying so I guess what I would say is the word of God is good but the effect that it produces on people who are turned away from God is is bad So kind of like the way that Paul describes the law. I just got done teaching through Part of Galatians. The law is good, but the law is also the occasion by which sinners are further condemned. So for them it's not good, even though the law is a good thing in itself. So the parables are a good thing in themselves, but the effect they produce on unbelievers makes them in a worse state than they were before because they have further judgment for for not receiving God's truth there. And then people will say, well, that's not fair. If they couldn't understand it, how can God hold them accountable for it? And God's ultimately holding them accountable for their persistent unbelief, not for the fact that they don't have a capacity to respond in some way. Um, Does that answer your question? Okay. All right. Uh, Let's keep... Tina, do you have... Okay, okay. Uh, Who wants to read verses? Let's just do 8 through 16, and then we'll walk through. Who wants to read 8 to 16? of Hosea 7. Evan, thank you.
2: they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart. When they wail on their beds, for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from Although I train and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt.
0: So continuing the baking analogy in verse eight. What's his point? Yeah. Well, we <laughs> can fix the oven, okay. But now we're talking about even what's being put into the oven is corrupt. So if you were making bread, what would you put in it? Yeast, flour, like all of those normal ingredients that are edible, right? And in their case, what was God's attitude toward the nations? They're defiled, they're an abomination. So it's basically like if you went out and you found you know, somebody's dog left something by your sidewalk, and you're like, oh, I'm going to throw that in with the loaf of bread. I think that's the imagery that we have here. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Here's something that's supposed to be holy and good, mixed with something that's corrupt and repulsive to God, and mixed together. And then it's not only that, but then you throw it in the oven, and then you burn it. Right? So, as a cake not turn? You ever made pancakes or whatever, and you're supposed to flip them, and you don't flip them; they get all scorched on one side, right? So, not only do you have something that's repulsive because of the ingredients, but also because it's improperly prepared and and just not gone about it in the right way, right? Then you have another image in verse nine. Now in this case, gray hairs are used as a sign of judgment. Um, there's Places in the Bible where gray hair is associated with wisdom and honor and those sorts of things, but in this case, it's gray hair that's associated with here's someone who mm, thinks he's 20, but then looks in the mirror and realizes he's 80. Like his strength has gone out. That's the the illustration that's that's not here. So, and I think you know whatever our attitude toward aging, I think we recognize that there is a degree to which we're not as strong at 60 and 80 as we are at 20 and 30, right? Jonathan? In the first
1: template, it kind of indicates uh, that basically he's wasting his strength um, in pursuit of whatever his
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so he's using up his lifespan, basically, I guess we could say, right? verse 10 I think is pretty obvious right he's the only one who can't seize his pride and his stubborn refusal to turn to God so verse 11 is interesting this idea of being like a silly dove if you were going to picture the the finest of the bird kingdom to be your mascot how many of you would pick a dove probably not most of us right because what. Well, if, have you ever watched a dove fly when you startle them? Yeah, it's not its not particularly majestic or seemingly mm, well thought out, right? It's just sort of like, right? So, in contrast to something like an eagle that you see soaring around majestically that seems purposeful and strong and all that sort of thing, um, being compared to a dove is an insult here because... They're not skilled at avoiding traps. They're not skilled at planning for the future. Why does God describe them in this way, according to verse 11? Why are they described as Mary? It kind of goes back to Isaiah's time when, okay. when they uh, were going to Assyria and Egypt for help instead of asking for God's help. Right. And it's interesting to note this is written around the same time. Yeah, so Hosea is reproving Israel largely at the same time that Isaiah is reproving Judah, and he's saying to Israel, why are you going to Assyria and Egypt? Now, what's significant about them going to Assyria and Egypt in light of what happens a few years later? Brayden? Yeah, they're going to the very people who in a short while are the ones that are going to conquer them. And if that's not a sign of foolishness, <laughs> I'm not sure what is, right? But, verse 12... Who is ultimately in charge of their defeat by these nations? God is. And so the nations are the means by which they are judged, but God is the one who's carrying it out. And then he says, here's the reason, verse 13. They've strayed, they've rebelled, they speak lies against me. They say, what what were some of the lies that the Israelites spoke against God? God. Some that started early on and they're leaving Egypt, but or some he of the things. doesn't care about us, right? He doesn't pay attention to us. What's that?: Right. He doesn't see our needs. He doesn't care about us. Uh, he's brought us out here to die. They get to the land of Canaan. He's brought us to the land of Canaan to die. They're in the land of Canaan. We can't defeat the people, which means God's a liar because he said we could defeat them, but we say we can't defeat them. So over and over again, early on in their history, the Israelites accuse God of things that are lies. And then again, you know, when, when they come to the time of Solomon, and then they split under the time of Solomon's son, there's further lies. We can do it better than God. They might not have said it specifically that way, but their actions made it very clear that they were believing something like, God set up this system of worship, we can set up a better system of worship. And all they did was rehash the same sinful... Practices that they did in the wilderness on the way out of Egypt, which are going to come up in the later part of chapter 8. They've spoken lies against God. They've rebelled against Him. They strayed from Him. What about verse 14? Is it possible to have something that looks like repentance that isn't true repentance? What's the difference between crying because you got caught and crying because you're sorry about your sin? Sandra? Okay. And that doesn't mean that you will never, ever again do the thing that you're turning away from if there is genuine (laughs) repentance. But the sort of attitude that says, hey, I got caught, I feel bad, Um, I'm going to... uh, Let's say that your sin is being a drunk, right? And so you say, I'm going to repent of this. So you throw away all of it, right? And the next day you go to the store and you buy it all again. And you stash it various places around your house. You're not actually repenting, right? You have a a moment of awareness of the problems that it's causing for you, and then you go right back to it. Jonathan?
1: Yeah, the difference is in perspective of where the harm is going. Okay.
0: Okay. So you're saying if we have a selfish perspective, as long as it doesn't hurt me, it's okay, and then we keep going back to sin versus uh, how is this hurting everyone around me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Sandra? Okay. okay so along those lines verse 14 why are they assembling themselves and turning away from God in their false system of worship what is it they're hoping to gain out of it it says for the sake of grain and new wine wine. so they're not actually upset that God is displeased with them they're upset that the things that they want God to give them they're not getting right and so that is the fundamental basis of all the idolatry the Israelites ever did, pretty much, was we want good crops, we want lots of kids, and we want a fairly comfortable life without people attacking us. That's pretty much the basis of all their idolatry. Why did they worship Dagon and and Molech and all of these other, Baal, and all these other false gods? It's because they thought that they could give them fertility and peace, right? And so to the extent that they weren't getting that, they might cry out to God and say, Oh God, we're so sorry, will you please help us? But they didn't actually care about God. And going to Sanders' point, they didn't search after God with their whole heart. They were lying about why, and, and it's foolishness to think that we can come to God and say, God, I'm so sorry that I sin. Let me." At, in the very moment that we're plotting how we can keep doing that sin, right? But that's sometimes how fickle our hearts are, right? Um... Verse 15 and 16 are a picture of sort of you train a new recruit to be in your army and then he goes and fights for the enemy almost. You can't rely on him. He betrays you. When it says a deceitful bow, um, either I think there's perhaps the picture of you know where it talks about you lean on a stick and it breaks and it stabs you through the hand or you go to the... To shoot an arrow and it, it breaks or sends the arrow flying off a completely different direction. You you can't rely on it. It's not trustworthy, and I think that's the picture of both verses 15 and 16. But the end result is what? The very people they're going to find help from, verse 11, what happens in verse 16? They defeat them. They mock them. You want to come to us for help? Now you've shown that you're weak. Now we're going to beat you. Ha ha. Right. So then we come into chapter eight. Who wants to read one through seven, Mary? Yeah. Go ahead. Verse sixteen. I was thinking back to when they were ready to go into Canaan. Okay. And the spies came out, and they believed the deceitful spies instead of Joshua, and so they were punished by having to wander and the. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's deceit of, uh, yeah, that's a great example of that. they completely forgot about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. So the having to wander around in the wilderness and the deceit of the spies. Okay. Good. Who wants to read chapter 8 for us, the first uh, seven verses maybe? Bob, thank you.
3: Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the call of Samaria will be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no gain. Should it, yield stranger, should it yield, strangers would swallow it up.
0: Okay. So what's the description of the enemy? Like what? What kind of, in verse 1, how do they come against the Israelites? Okay. How were they described in the previous chapter? who's going to win that fight right um, verse four is inter well before we get to verse four, um, instead of so in terms of descriptions of themselves, so their enemies are like an eagle and Israel is like a dove, right? Okay? In terms of their system of laws, you have God's law, right? And you have um, their false system of uh, false government that they've established, right? And this is, again, an example of what's going on with Israel. Their false government is characterized by uh, the fact that they've rejected God's law in verse 1. Um, we see this in verse 1, we see it in verse 3, we see it in verse 4. They've set up these false kings. okay. And then um, you have the idea of um, what are they worshiping? So we have worship of God, set in contrast of worship of the idols, of the calf so that's in verses um 4 and 5 and 6 so because israel has rejected god they're not in a position of strength we saw that in chapter 7 there's just all of these ways that they're they're imploding right their rulers are drunk the people are full of sin the rulers rejoice in their sin and then it's like they're all burning up like this oven that's been left untended, right? And then their very thing that they're trying to produce is corrupt, and now he's talking about why it's corrupt, because they gave up God's law for this false system of government. Did God want the people to have a king? Eventually, right? God always planned to to have a king when there is a prophecy given to Jacob about uh descendants of his the descendants of his of Judah he talks about that the scepter will not depart from from between his feet like he, there's going to be a ruler from the tribe of Judah so there's anticipation that there's going to be a king but Saul is not the king cuz Saul's from the wrong tribe right so he's not the one that's fulfilling the prophecy that Jacob gave on God's behalf and furthermore um all of the Jeroboam and all the ones who follow after they can't be the fulfillment of the prophecy because they're not in the right tribe and they're not even of the, the line of the king who came before, right? So here's David's family down in the southern kingdoms and then here's this random guy who says, I'm going to be king in the northern kingdoms, right? And so they have set up this false system of government, a false system of government with wrong laws, a false system of government uh, that is rejected good for, for evil and then a false system of government in terms of the king that is ruling over them, right? And then in terms of their worship of God, um, there's the true worship of God that's centered in Jerusalem, right? And, And moving toward the temple, right? And they've set up worship of idols in Samaria, and by means of golden calves and all of their own sacrificial system, right? And there were also sacrifices. So, when you come to the woman at the well, and she talks about our fathers have worshipped on this mountain and all that sort of thing, she's basically saying, "This is the this is the system of worship that we're familiar with, right? We've got our own version of the Bible. We've got our own system of sacrifice. We've got our own uh, what what all that looks like, right? So, because Israel set up a false government and a false system of worship." they are to their enemies like a like a dove versus an eagle. Or the picture in verse 7, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind, their grain is going to be consumed. And so by doing this, they thought that they would be stronger, and they've actually increased the amount of destruction that's about to be sweeping through and destroying them. I read a passage like this, and I look at it, and I... I marvel a little bit because here is God, um, you know, if it was from a human perspective, we would say bearing a grudge, right? It's been quite a long while since all this happened with Jeroboam, right? 300 years, something like that. And God is still bringing this up. Why? Because this is still the root cause of all the evil of them straying away from God. And so it is both fresh in God's memory and something which he constantly reminds them of. And so then, um, the rest here of chapter 8, we'll just go through it quickly for sake of time. Israel is swallowed up. They're like a vessel in which no one delights. I didn't look up the exact word, but I think the picture, and I think it fits with this, is basically like Israel has become like a chamber pot. Right There's shame, there's dishonor associated with them. Um, they've gone up to Assyria, they're alone like a wild donkey. Ephraim has hired lovers. It's basically like everybody's abandoned you and you're trying to buy friendship and love from the people around you, and it's still going to fail In verse 10, they'll begin to diminish. And then in verse 11, what's the basis of God's judgment? Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin. They have become altars of sinning for him. I wrote for him 10,000 of my law. They are regarded as a strange thing. And so again, they rejected God's law for all of their false laws and for their false worship, and they see it as a good thing, and it is in fact the basis for their destruction. Verse 13, that my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice flesh and eat it. So they're, they're performing a mockery that looks like the true system of worship, but it's in the wrong place, by the wrong people, in the wrong way, and God is not going to honor it. And so God, it says, will remember their iniquity and punish for their sins. They will return to Egypt. So here's the irony. God delivered them from Egypt. Going back to Egypt was never again seen as a good thing. Um, he provided for them during the famine in Canaan. But never again did he want them to go down to Egypt, right? And it says they will return to Egypt, some of them in captivity. And the reason is they've forgotten the maker, they built palaces, they've multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire that it may consume its palatial dwellings. They thought that the path to peace and being rescued and delivered was we just have to make more forts. Better armies, more chariots, more forts, more training, more defense spending, and we're good. And God said, I'm going to burn it all down. I'm going to send a tornado through it to wipe it out. You're going to be, your efforts are going to be as effective as a dove trying to fight an eagle. Not because the nations around them were immune to God's wrath themselves, but because God's people had so thoroughly rejected God and become foolish in their sin. And that, I think, is then when we could jump to a passage like Romans 1. There's this downward spiral. The more we sin, the more we trust in our own schemes, and the more foolish they become. The more that we reject God, the more that we try to come up with alternatives to God, and the worse alternatives they are. And again, just over and over again, God gave them all these opportunities to repent, and they keep stubbornly going their own way. And there is hope in the book of Hosea. Unfortunately, it's not in these two chapters, so we'll have to wait a few weeks to get back to it. But um, I think it's important for us to understand just this picture of how they did sort of uh, everything that God gave them that was good. They came up with an inferior and a wicked substitute for. And that was part of why God's wrath toward them was so harsh. The people of Judah were were punished reproved, discipline for their idolatry, but it was you need to keep coming back to the system of worship that you're straying away from. Right? The people of the northern tribes of Israel have completely thrown out the thing that they were supposed to worship and com- come up with their own substitutes for it, and that's part of, I think, why God was so much harsher on the northern tribes than he was on the southern tribes, though all of them together were sinful in their idolatry and their rejection of God. Any final thoughts on this as we wrap up? a reminder of the dangers of trying to go our own way apart from God, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders. I pray that they would be uh, not that which would uh, keep us from having hope, but that which would just stir our hearts to see the foolishness of turning away from you. Help us not to stray like this. Help us not to be blind like this. Help us not to trust in ourselves like this. Uh, although I'm sure for all of us there have been moments when we've done so. I pray that we would see how much better it is to follow you and the path that you've laid out for us with the laws and parameters that you've established with worship of the only true God who is the creator instead of idols which are made things. All of these ways in which you are better and worthy. Uh, may we always remember that. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.